And as he screamed out, burned alive, he cried out, I will return. I will have my revenge. Never found his body. He survived. He lives on whatever he can catch. It's them raw, alive, no longer human. Right now, he's out there, watching, waiting. Don't look. He'll see you. Don't move. He'll hear you. Hello, and welcome to the Morbid Museum. I am your host, Katie Mead, and... I'm Luke Boyd. (laughs) Welcome this week. We are so excited to have you back with us again. I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for the fantastic feedback that we've gotten on Death Masks. It's been such a treat hearing all the great things that you all have to say. Um, I... am really, really honored to be bringing this content to you guys, but I'm actually going to hand it over because I am not your tour guide this week. This week, Luke Boyd is the tour guide. Thank you, Katie. Our tour continues, folks, through the Morbid Museum. Today, (laughs) we're going to be discussing the legend of Cropsy or the Cropsy Maniac. I'm so excited. (laughs) I can scream. (laughs) (laughs) You will scream, my dear. You'll scream with pain and fear. Terror. Um, This is an amazing story that is quintessentially related to New York City, to New York State. It has penetrated Hollywood. Um, The clip that you just heard was a dramatic telling of the Cropsey legend as it was told in the 1981 film, The Burning. Slasher film produced in the 1980s. Oh, that's what it's um, called. I thought I I didn't know that that was the name of the movie. So so again, just as a reminder, I think they're going to yeah. Um, I don't I don't know really anything about this. I know I know the basics of the legend of Cropsey, um, but I have purposefully, since Luke and I decided to start this podcast and do this topic, not done any real research, and it's actually a sad thing for me as his friend who's been begging me for years to watch the documentary that I've been like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. I'll do that. Yeah, and we'll do that podcast someday. (laughs) You're like a juror in the Amber Heard Johnny Depp juror. Like, no one believes you. You went on social media. You are biased. You did something. You're not ignorant. I know. I know. I know almost less than nothing. So I am I'm coming in very blank here and I and I'm so excited. I think you may know more than you know. Maybe. Um, But so this is an amazing story because it is part urban legend. That's where it starts. Um, And Cropsey becomes a real life horror film uh, with a series of true crime stories related to Staten Island. And it takes place against the backdrop of this constellation of former institutions for mental health and wellness on Staten Island. And so you can think of the place as Cropsey land or Cropsey's domain. Um, Cropsey is a person, you could, you could argue a real person, someone who did these crimes, or the mythic person who perpetrates them in the urban legend mindset. So this is an extremely meta, super kooky, crazy, 
uh, concept for this podcast. And let me just say that this, this story has been told many times in movies like we just heard from The Burning, documentaries, which we'll talk about, and many, many other podcasts. But I hope that this podcast gives you a new angle on some of those details. So we did some work and research to try to pull out some of the grittier, you know, details, the nooks and crannies, if you were, in this story. So we got a lot to talk about. Oh my so, God. <laughs> I mean, I can't even I can't even focus right now. I'm freaking out. And and um, also a slight disclaimer. Uh last week Luke had a horrible case of strep throat. <laughs> I am mid-COVID as we speak. So whatever yes. horrendous sounds you hear along the way. It's not cropsy. We deeply apologize. It's for sure not cropsy. I am on Every medicine you could imagine to push myself through this. I'm drinking Coke. I'm doing Coke. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. We have a lot of drugs cycling through us. Whatever folks, we have this is our dedication. The dedication. Exactly. The we the didn't want to leave the, you high and dry without an episode. So the tour must go yeah, on. Yeah. So please forgive us for any any grossness that has not to do with Cropsy. All the grossness to do with Cropsy is absolutely welcome. <laughs> so Katie, let me ask you something. Did yes. you ever go to a sleepaway camp when you were a kid? God. No, no. <laughs> Your parents were part of that group where it was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. I don't know um, if it was that my parents were ahead of the uh, the molesty curve or if they were just too poor or too lazy. I but think, yeah, I think it's, yeah. I think also growing up in, I think also growing up in Brooklyn, like, I don't know, city, city kids don't always do that stuff. We're kind of just, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it, we, I do. I, I feel do. like we're the least likely to do that kind of. I think it's, it's, well, I think it's interesting, you know, if um, there's a, there's a huge, as you know, if you've seen The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, or if you're Jewish, have Jewish friends, you know that sleepaway camp is like culturally very yes. big in the, Jewish, in the Jewish community, right? Whether very. or not people are really, you know, um, orthodox or practicing heavily, it's like for folks who are reform, whatever, it's part of the overall sort of gestalt of Jewish life in America. This idea, especially for kids living in urban areas, to escape to the bucolic wilderness, to live on their own for a week and try to solve their own problems. Um, that is sort of the the cult of the sleepaway camp. And I was part of that too. I was a Boy Scout from Connecticut and there were sure. several camps throughout Connecticut. Very fond memories of legends and stories and getting spooked the hell to sleep uh, at camp. I'll tell you one since, <laughs> since, since I got one for you. So Please, when, I yes. was at, when I was at, yeah, when I was at Camp Sequassin, which is in a remote area of the Northern Litchfield area of Connecticut, um, there was a legend of horrible Hannah. And the legend was, as the scoutmaster would tell, that um, there were uh, a group of rambunctious scouts at this camp and they were messing around in the dining hall. And the woman who ran the dining hall was this imperious, you know, dining hall magistrate named Hannah. And the unfortunate thing happens to Hannah when the kids are playing next to the fryer and the oh, hot no. oil gets splashed <laughs> all over poor Hannah's face. And oh, so tale Hannah this is time. Dis she's she's disfigured, she's destroyed, but she does not just recover poor from Hannah. her wounds and live a, live a normal life. She becomes a terrible boogie person. So yeah, what they would it. do is they would. <laughs> They would tell the story and then we would go to bed or whatever. We'd be like, you know, we're not really in bed in the bunks. And one of the scoutmasters would come up to the window and like put his hands over his eyes and be like, I'm putting my hand <laughs> It was fucking terrifying. <laughs> terrifying so, to this day. So and I can draw weird. a line 
from that to now. Yeah, it's, it's so mean. It's very scary. But when you're in that group mentality too, it's like you kind of feel invincible and you all get spooked, but then you're all laughing in two minutes. Um, sure. So yeah. it's very comforting, you know. So the legend of Cropsy is one that has been well documented um, in the Hudson River Corridor. Um, depending on who you ask or who you talk to, if you are of a certain age, or maybe your parents or your uncles and aunts went to camp when they were kids, many of them recall hearing the legend of Cropsy. Um, so it's believed that it started either in upstate New York or it started in lower state New York and migrated upward or downward or probably both. If you imagine Brooklyn kids going from, you know, Brooklyn upward up the river, um, there's a feedback loop happening year after year where the story gets told and retold over and over again. So it's fast. Sure. So the basic gist of it goes something like this. So there is a man by the name of George Cropsey in this story. And the idea is that he's an upstanding citizen. In some of the versions of the story, he's a judge or a man of sort of power. Um, and he goes insane after an accidental death occurs within his family. Uh, depending on the story, it's campers who pull a prank um, or it's some kind of fire that the campers start that sets Cropsey's house ablaze, killing his wife and daughter. Mm. In any event, Cropsey is crazed with revenge uh, from this terrible burning. And this is also used Gotta. in the burning movie. This I mean, what are you going to do? Every like scary bad guy. This is the Phantom of the it Opera. Is. This is Jason Voorhees. This is Freddy and Jason. Yeah. This is everyone. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same trope. But somehow yeah. the packaging is different and the, the, the effect is still the same. Um, sure. So... Uh, uh, the camp guards itself for this killer on the loose. The campers sleep with knives and hatchets in their beds. They awake to find a missing hatchet, and then they turn their flashlights, and one of the campers has been de decapitated. Or so the story goes. And so Cropsy exacts his revenge on the campers year after year. I will return. I will get what, what I'm owed. And you heard a little bit of that in the Cropsy legend as laid out um, in the burning movie. Um, what's amazing about this is there were folklorists in the 1970s who were writing about this. And they were interviewing people all over the area. And it, the legend is known as the Cropsy Maniac Killer or the Cropsy Maniac Legend. Huh. And so it's something that has happened to people in terms of their mythological experience. And we love urban legends. We love urban myths. They're fascinating. Um, and I think we're really, really excited in our society right now about where these stories begin. Not so much trading them, but trying to figure out where they started. Like, I don't know if you remember the urban legend movie from like the early 2000s um, that kind of dug into that where they kind of pick apart like all the legends of like, you know, the guy hanging from the tree above the lover's lane and the, with the foot scraping on the roof of the car. Um, it's incredible. Um, and so what I can also do now is give you a little glimpse of the Cropsy legend as it has been rehearsed or retold on Staten Island. And this comes oh. from the- <laughs> Oh my God, I'm so ready. I I primed you folks. There's going to be a lot of accents here, and I'm you know, so happy. <laughs> the subject of the movie is it's it's a sad documentary. It's true crime. There's bad things that happen, but as Katie would point out, at least there are charming accents involved in the exchange. Charming accents along um, the way. I uh I did watch the trailer, and I I oh good. It it is a terrible story, but you know these are my people. As a native Brooklynite, 
I'm allowed to laugh at their accents. Yes. <laughs> All right. So as promised, the Cropsy documentary from 2009 is an incredible watch. Now, I'm sorry, Katie, that I've embargoed you from seeing it or you've embargoed yourself <laughs> because you're missing out. It's on um, me. It's, it has nothing to do with you. You've done you've done all the right thing. <laughs> I'm a big Cropsy advocate. I, I love this film. I love this film. The director is Joshua Zeman. Um, he's from Staten Island and he's worked on other projects like Killer Legends. Um, he also was a producer of like other regular films, which is really cool. Um, but this, this project is special to him because he grew up with the Cropsy legend. Mm -hmm. And so there's a wonderful clip from the beginning of the documentary in which you get a quick little snippet of remember that story that we heard through the burning now think about that story being remixed in staten island and this is in 2009 people remembering their youth of cropsy okay to learn about cropsy in, in summer camp he was uh, he was a uh, doctor he was supposed to have a hook with a knife about this big and he was an axe wielding madman the wife was killed he was being chased or taunted he wanted kids and he would find them and he would pack you up, chop them up. Don't go behind the Sherwood bunks. Cropsy's out there. Make sure you get off at the mall. Don't continue <laughs> to go any further. Don't go down by the lake at night. Cropsy's down there. No, don't go near Willowbrook Park. Willowbrook Park is dangerous. There are many communities. <laughs> are you satisfied? <laughs> don't go to the park. Oh don't go to the park. Don't go to the park. It's dangerous. They don't go at night. Don't go. Don't go. But I tell you, Gianna. Don't go to Willowbrook Park at night. Cropsy will kill doing? you. What are you even doing? Cropsy will fucking kill you and chop you up in little pieces. And I got to come find you. In she pieces. thinks who she is going over there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, everything. and somehow this movie dredges up incredible talking heads. Like the detectives who were there in the 70s. And, you know, people who live on Staten Island now trying to find the missing children. It's... It's an amazing ethnographic study. Um, I'm obsessed already. It's something to be obsessed about. You're welcome here uh, to, the, to the museum. Um, so that little clip helps contextualize a little bit of what Cropsy meant to the people of Staten Island. Um, what is what does the word Cropsy even friggin' mean? Like where Thank does you. that where does that word come from? Um, I want to explore that a little bit with you all. So, Katie, you're from Brooklyn. I sure am. You may know about Cropsy Avenue. I sure near, do. Near Coney Island. I sure yes. do. Yeah. So the Cropsy family has yes. been a part of the staff of a part of New York's fabric going back to like the Dutch. I was going to the say English. they're Dutch, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is believed that they are some from a branch of the Dutch Huguenots um, that would have been here in the early settlement of colonial America. The name itself apparently is a derivation of Casper. Oh, like Kasparse uh -oh. or or different like like Kaspard. Somehow it gets to Cropsy. I don't know how exactly um, it research limited me to some, <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> I had to kind of rein it in at some point. But what's even more fascinating and like many Brooklynites, those who crossed over the Verrazano Bridge after 1964 and learned the Cropsy legend uh -huh. or those who took a boat in 1664, there was a man on Staten Island named Jasper. Francis Cropsey. Mm. And there are many he sounds English. He he does. He's married into different like French. <laughs> yeah, he did he, he married in different families anyway. So Jasper Francis Cropsey was a landscape painter of the Hudson mm. River School. 
And he was oh, born. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He, I haven't thought about Hudson River School in forever. Yes, oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. I mean, yep. I'm a big fan of the Hudson River School, especially you worked at New York Historical. Yeah. Incredible Thomas Cole collection there. The Thomas Cole collection is um, off the hook. We think about Asher Durand. We mm-hmm. think about uh, Kensett. So many of these amazing artists who create these, what we might almost think of as like, you know, pre-Thomas Kincaid almost schlocky landscapes, but they're stunningly beautiful. Like Albert Bierstadt, you know, painting the domes of Yosemite, these beautiful. They're gorgeous. And they also, you know, they tell a certain story of the time of, you know, people being concerned about the country and New York and the more natural beauty. But anyway. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. And there's something really beautiful about the Virgin landscape that the Hudson River School artists depict, because I believe they were trying to say industry, technology, civilization should not take away from this beautiful land. The idea that America was blessed with this land. Yeah. Um, And if you've never been to upstate New York, if you ever do go, you will be shocked to see what the rest of New York actually looks like because it is is woods. It is farmland. I mean, and that's what New York City, Manhattan, (laughs) looked like. (laughs) You are exactly correct. And yeah. um, there's uh, there's a real beauty to it. And when you connect with these paintings, it's very special. It's a very New York, yes. very American thing. Um, so Cropsey was a man of his time. He was born in 1823 in Rossville on Staten Island. He lived in a farm with his family. And he was deeply devout Christian. And like many Hudson River School artists, he believed that the divine hand of God had blessed this land. Mm. And he would paint these paintings of these rays of sunlight touching the earth as if God had sort of, you know, put his hand upon it. And so people say that his Christian beliefs can be seen in his writings. He also um, was an architect. He helped design churches and Gothic buildings in the time. So he made money in a couple different ways, a couple different gigs. Um, I feel like all those guys did. They all had like 10 different jobs. They certainly, they were all polyglots. (laughs) Yes. They spoke amazing languages. Um, and We're in so fact, one of now. <laughs> oh, we have nothing. I have We're so yeah, dumb I, now. I can't change Tyra McCarr, can't do anything. Um, I'm very limited. I have a humanities degree. I'm very limited. Um, I am blinkered by my degree. Um, facts. One of Cropsey's early paintings, 1843, is the Cropsey Farm, which of course is the family farm. Uh-huh. Um, he goes on to paint many other paintings. Um, you know, he met Queen Victoria. He met Abraham Lincoln, like just led this incredible storied existence. Um, you know, but he starts on Staten Island. He's inspired by the landscapes of Staten Island and paints them in these beautiful depictions. And the landscape mm-hmm. of Staten Island is the character in this story, kind of holding everything together. And what so are his, have, what, I'm sorry, Luke, what are his active years as an artist? So he was active all throughout his adult life. So 1840s is when his first paintings appear. Okay. And then he dies in 1900. Okay. And that's a I long mean, career. He had a long life. And yeah. I looked up way too much about this guy. He had a, <laughs> he had a he had a palatial estate called Aladdin in Virgin in in, in New Jersey. It. Just Aladdin. Like oh. how 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 Moorish, how interesting. Aladdin. You know, if he was in Staten Island today, they'd tell you, "Oh, get over yourself." <laughs> well, Aladdin, get the daddy. Get over yourself. And Aladdin. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, Cropsey would not recognize his beloved Staten Island today. Oh, it is whatever do you mean? It is so different. Um, it is so different. Um, so that's sort of where the Cropsey name comes from. There are other uh there was there was a judge Cropsey who was part of Cropsey's family. So the Cropsey word, it makes sense that it's kind of baked into Staten Island, but yeah. it also was all up the Hudson River. 
just like this story. So it's kind of ping-ponging back and forth. And, you know, you have the sort of beautiful landscape depicted by Cropsey of the 19th century. And then you have the Cropsey of the 20th century and 21st century. Very different. Very different how it's been reclaimed, Mm. this word, this name, and what it means itself. Cropsey would have meant a beautiful view. Now it means hide your kids. Um, Very (laughs) different connotations (laughs) attached to the word, which I think is so fascinating. So fascinating. I mean, language changes over time, right? It certainly does. It certainly does. This is a great example of that. Yeah, the game of telephone gone awry. Horribly. Um, So, Katie, what do you know about the abandoned sites of mental health and wellness on Staten Island? (laughs) What an amazing, (laughs) amazing question. That's so esoteric. (laughs) Uh, uh, I suppose nothing. I would say nothing. I, you know, I, fun fact about me is I have lived in every borough in New York City, minus the Bronx, but I wouldn't say that I have expertise on any of them except the one that I was really born in. Uh, And I guess Manhattan is second after that, just because I worked there a lot. But uh, yeah, Staten Island you know, it's not most people's favorite borough. So I think, uh, which, you know, the more that I get older and get, get over myself, I realize yeah. that there is actually amazing history in Staten Island and Staten Island, and there's a lot to learn. So I'm, I'm trying to be open-minded here and not be, I appreciate it. It's a Brooklyn, hard to, a Brooklyn it's, asshole about this, but it's hard to sell Staten Island to people. Yeah, no, I get it. It's the forgotten borough. It's not reachable by public transit. You have to get to take a ferry to get no, there. No, I didn't have a good time living there when I lived there. It's, it's, Would you? Were you in college? Right, I was. That was my first year of college. I I was there before I transferred to Manhattan because I didn't want to fucking live in Staten Island. Anymore. Right, right. It's yeah. Even when you got yourself there for a semester, you're like, I'll try it. I'll try it. Oh, fuck, no. It's like, oh, um, oh, what a what a delightful uh, scenery of garbage and uh, a Friday's. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what Katie's referring to, of course, is the famous Fresh Kills landfill, which is mm. one of the most largest landfills in the world. And it kind of defines the island in a way. Um, yes. For, for a while, their borough flag was literally like a hump of like landfill dirt with seagulls. Like Yes. So, so much pride. So, so much stinky. pride. And I went to uh, I went to Wagner for for everybody keeping score at home. <laughs> I was going to ask. I'm glad, to. <laughs> I'm glad you surrendered it. I was going to ask, but that makes sense too because they have they had a theater they have a theater program, right? And yes, very, yes. Like... So I uh, I was still I was undeclared at the time, and I was still figuring out what I wanted to do, and I ended up just switching to Marymount, which is in New York City, because uh, they had a more like dramaturgy focused program that I was interested in. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think also my my prejudice for Staten Island has to do with, you know, it's it's a horrible drive from Brooklyn to Staten Island, right? You know, the the cost of it, the fact that mm-hmm. you have to pay to do it, and then when you it. get there, it's you know, there's not much going on. It's mostly housing and a, a pretty good mall, a pretty mediocre zoo, and, great shopping. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> Yes. So, so and dazzle me, excite me. Make I'm me ready to dazzle to you. So, tell me where I can go to have the <laughs> shit scared out of me that doesn't involve being mugged. I will do my best. So, what's interesting about Staten Island, and I, I now work on Staten Island at a museum there, and I'm new to the island as well. Staten Island has always had this reputation of being this ugly stepsister, and it was a place literally where the undesirables of New York Harbor would be dumped. 
So <laughs> sorry. Oh man, it's Cheerio. so hard. It's so hard to not make jokes. So nothing's changed. Got it. Done. Um, the the quarantine station was a hospital where immigrants coming to this country who had contagious diseases would be sent to, and the residents of Staten Island hated this. And after sure. like fifty years, they burned it down. Um, the quarantine war of eighteen fifty eight. Oh, <laughs> and it's top topical, of course, because of COVID. Um, but uh, there were a lot of these. It was a huge area. It's a huge island. It's the rock. It's seven miles wide and 13 miles long. And it's all this vast expanse of space. A lot of farmland, but farmland is not everything. So there's a lot of cemeteries, right? There's a lot of burial grounds. And there are also these sites of mental health, what we might call asylums or institutions. Um, These massive campuses, massive campuses, care centers, um, where people who either were alcoholic, people who were poor, couldn't couldn't take care of themselves. There was no welfare state in the 19th century. Or people who were developmentally disabled would be shipped in droves to various sites on Staten Island. Right. And so there are three of them. Three okay. campuses that come into view as we are turning the corner off Brielle Avenue, as it were, on Staten I think it Island. will be good when we when we post this on um our Instagram to have the a map that maybe shows where these each are, but if you can, cause I know what Staten Island looks like. If you could tell me if I'm looking at the map of Staten Island, where these things kind of, Oh yeah. Be, yeah. Just for my own. Yeah, mind. sure. So <laughs> we're, we're looking in the, the middle of the Island. So the green okay. belt is this massive connection of parkland that goes through the Island. And there's all these well. local parks and different sites and, and actually and scout camps that abut some of these sites, which is exactly mm. where these stories got passed to. Okay. There was a Boy Scout camp right next to one of these facilities. So we're in the middle of the island. Um, we're near, we're sort of near Westerly, uh, near off Rockland Avenue. Um, it's a big swath of land. And so you got three different campuses. I'm not going to go into super, super detail about all of them, but I'm going to try my best to kind of give you a <laughs> sense of what's going on here. So the first and, you know, one of the most important is the New York Farm Colony. So the farm colony started in 1829 as the Richmond County Poor Farm. It would have Sounds been Sounds great. It's very Victorian. It's the equivalent. It's a poorhouse. So yeah. if you were indigent, if you were poor, you owed money if you whatever, you were not able to 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 keep yourself housed, you would be found indigent or sent to the Richmond County Poor Farm and people suffered there, you know, toiling. And I was going to say literally- the idea being that you you basically have to pay yes. your way through labor. Yes. Yeah. It is the modern Brooklyn co-op, but from hell. Um, <laughs> so, you know, people would tend vegetables. They would have chickens and livestock. And the farm would sell these things to the local community. And there's records that indicate, like, in the late 1800s, they were making $20,000 a year. And so they're totally self-sufficient and blah, blah, blah. Oh, um, yeah. Definitely not any type of serfdom or anything. <laughs> No, it's and right. It's so it's a very uh, unfortunate experience and dehumanizing experience to be in one of these places. Right. So the architecture of these buildings was 211. They built these structures like fortresses. You're talking stone, brick, masonry, 19th century incredible like Dutch architecture. So they're taking these massive buildings where people would sleep and they have these little like barn architectural details on them. And so Mm. they're hearkening back to like the Dutch history, the farm life 
Cropsey was so inspired by um, uh-huh. in this landscape. Um, so you have these massive campuses. And so the New York City Farm Colony is one of them. It eventually becomes the New York Farm Colony when Staten Island consolidates with the rest of New York City in 1898. Um, and so at its height, the farm had a carpenter shop, a paint shop, a tailor shop, a broom shop, a blacksmith shop, had all of this going on. And some of the images of the farm colony when it was functioning are beautiful. They're bucolic. And the sure. idea, too, was that if you're working in a beautiful environment, you lowly peasant will edify yourself and bring mm. yourself up from the depths of poverty and into success. Um, yes. The delusion. Absolutely. Um, that works every time. <laughs> it never fails. <laughs> So the farm colony rolls on. It's uh, about 30 acres. And what happens is Social Security happens. And so people are getting now support from the state that they need. Social Security for older people, retirees, and the welfare state continues to grow. The farm colony kind of ages. They can no longer work. Anyone who's left there can remain. They're, it's not required that they were. They had to work. So they, they loosened those requirements. They got more humanized I was as the say, years how, rolled on. That's nice. They became people. Yeah, give Ethel a shovel. She's 89, goddammit. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Grandma, no! She just wants to nap and watch murder, she wrote. Poor thing. Um, and what's incredible that is famed New York photographer from Staten Island, Alice Austin, ended up at the farm colony. No. Yes. Really? Yes. So Alice Austin was born, uh, a TikToker who I follow describes Alice Austin as a cottagecore lesbian, which of course I had to Google. Amazing. (laughs) So Alice Austin was a woman of immense privilege, gilded age. She lives on Staten Island in this beautiful home, family wealth, uh, gives her this life of luxury. She has a huge camera. She captures thousands of images on her camera all across New York City. She's a legend. 1930s. We're talking, I'm sorry. So for for the kids listening at home who are unfamiliar, gilded age is referring to... What years? I'm assuming. So, I'm, I, listen, guys, I know a lot of you are probably incredibly smart, but I also want to play the lowest common denominator here who may not. Know. I think she's born in the 1870s or 80s. So she's in the middle of the Gilded Age. So we're okay. talking late Victorian, post-Civil War. Um, and photography really ratchets up after the Civil sure, War. Sure, sure. Um, and she's a part of that. She's a woman. She's, you know, and she's a new woman in the time, you know. Absolutely. And it is believed It's an that- exciting time to be a young woman towards it the is. end of the uh yeah and she took these crazy photographs where men you know there's dread they're swapping costumes women are posing together men are posing together she has you know, all of her all of her queer friends doing their thing on staten island um then the great depression hits and poor girl loses everything uh and she loses her home her ancestral home and she is forced to go to the farm colony and uh, i know it's a tangent i know it's a tangent but it's um, okay Time Life magazine tracks her down. They were trying to do an expose on her in like 1950. And apparently one of the writers goes, wouldn't it be great if she was still alive today? And they're like, oh, but wait, homegirl's alive. So they track her down to the farm colony. And apparently, apparently she was- research, guys. Apparently she was, yeah, Time Life. I mean, there's no internet. (laughs) Just sitting there. And so they like, the, the, the writer from Time Life goes to the farm colony, finds Alice and starts talking to her. And apparently she's very despondent. And then oh. he starts taking out her photographs and she goes, oh, that's so-and-so or that's, that's Gertrude. And she like starts to come out of it. Time Life magazine, Staten Island Historical Society helps save her photographs, pay her off essentially to buy the rights to the photographs. No the shit. Money, the money from that windfall allowed her and her companion Gertrude to live comfortably for the remainder of their days. Hell yeah. 
Get after so it, ladies. She, she transcended the farm colony. So the farm colony goes on after Alice and it closes in the 1970s. Okay. Another site on the right net right across the street from the farm colony is the Seaview Hospital. And the Seaview Hospital came around the same time, 1905-ish. What was going on back then? Tuberculosis. Hell yeah. TB. Very scary. Very scary disease of the time. If you've read, if you've read Eugene O'Neill, you know consumption you've read any, was the devil. Honestly, anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was this specter. And it was, we didn't, we knew it was transmitted microbes or bacteria, but we didn't know how really it was. Yeah. The, the, the medical science was really bad. So they create this beautiful and apparently the most expensive tuberculosis hospital in the country on Staten Island and called Terrifying. And the idea was, yeah. And the idea was, if you have a nice view, if you live in a building with cross ventilation, if you live in a beautiful bucolic environment, oh, you, you have will... you have access to the to the salty sea air. It should be good for your lungs and heal Correct. you. Yes, breathe it in. It keeps me good. Um... <laughs> yeah, but get, but get your ten packs a day, and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. So this hospital, too, known for its architecture, Spanish Mission Revival, gigantic structures, um, but with tuberculosis research really ramping up in the 1940s, antibiotics helping uh, curtail the spread of the disease and other developments, the hospital is no longer needed. So it was this huge rush to build this hospital. Like, oh, my God, let's deal with this. Let's put these people away also. Let's well, yeah. isolate them from the world. That's a big part of this. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, because so, <laughs> the one thing they did understand was the closer you are to someone with consumption, the more likely you're going to end up with consumption. <laughs> right. There's something wrong with you. You have to be at least two miles away from me. Yeah. Um, so that building closes in the, the, that site closes in the 1960s, about 37 buildings. Um, and the third, ladies and gentlemen, is the Willowbrook State School, formerly the Halloran Hospital for uh, GIs during World War II, opens in the late 1940s. 380 acres, by far the largest Whoa. of the three. More That's than 100 huge. buildings. Gigantic. Absolutely gigantic. Wow. Um, and this site um, was, of course, like many of these early mental hospitals, was seen as a wonderful thing for the community. Beautiful grounds. This uh -huh. beautiful campus connected underground with all these tunnels for ease of access, um, which, of course, would play into the legend of these sites years later. Um, and but what I, happens? Yeah, I'm sorry, ahead. Luke. Quick question. Um, yeah. So we're talking the 1940s. So I think it's fair to say based on what I know of the time. Yeah. When we're talking about a mental health care facility, we are talking about people who are there for a very wide variety of reasons. You mentioned people. It could be people who have disabilities. Um, it could also be, you know, we didn't have the same rights for people with any kind of mental illness or anything like that. I don't know what the status was in the 40s, but you could kind of just lock someone away you could and you could have someone committed for any number of reasons right things like hysteria things that right. we don't yes. even re remember culturally and you're absolutely right and there was there was a large culture of this where let's say uncle so-and-so has a problem with alcohol with drink right and every year he is sent to the sanitarium the farm colony it was all these places mean essentially the same thing. Yes. They'd be sent to X place. They would dry them out, dry out, they, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they would just return. Mm -hmm. And we're also talking about incredibly crude notions about mental health and those people suffering from it. Um, yes, you're gonna you're gonna hear some words in a clip I'm gonna play that 
seem shockingly politically incorrect. Very um, dated language in this. I, yeah. Extremely Just from the little language. bit I've looked at on Cropsy, I imagine we're going to be hearing some some words that uh, are not appropriate <laughs> for exactly. the current time period. Yeah, exactly. And so it's important to sort of look at these in context. And so imagine that Katie and I are the living museum label who can help <laughs> contextualize that for yeah. you. So I want to play a little clip from... Uh, Geraldo Rivera expose on the Willowbrook State School. And what year is this? So this is 1972. Okay. So 1972, we're fast forwarding a bit now, right? Um, right? I hate that. Um, <laughs> Governor, Governor Nelson Rockefeller, Rockefeller Republican, um, like many conservative governments in America in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, sees these massive state-funded hospitals as a drain on their resources. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard. It's so hard to like him. And I'm actually kind of a Rockefeller fan because I love an underdog. Um, I (laughs) I mean, the drug laws, you know, him clearing out Albany, gutting Albany just to make his crazy space capsule. I I know. I know. Listen to me. Listen to me. We'll come back to him. Are you saying that cannibalism was justified? (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying it was karmically justified? Is that where this is going? Because this is where the comments are going. I'm not Um, saying that it wasn't justified. You know, there's just when you're when you're that wealthy and you go skiing all the time, shit's going to happen to you. I'm sorry. The rest of us are working nine to five. You know, the biggest risk I have is, you know, falling off the Arizona bridge. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) let's get back to the story. That might be Um, too inside baseball for some people. I think the bridge is a whole different episode. Um, So I'm going to play a short clip. And what this is, is a recording from 1965. So it's our buddy, Robert F. Kennedy, other flawed character, when he was then senator in New York State. And he's reporting on what he's seeing in Willowbrook. He had visited Willowbrook. I do know about this. This I do know about. Yes. Okay. Because this is a big quote in the changing attitudes of mental health. We know the Kennedys, yes. of course, are big are big proponents of the Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think about Rosemary Kennedy, someone who Absolutely. was institutionalized, was lobotomized. Um, so it's a very complicated legacy. And so Robert Kennedy speaks with, you know, the passion, of course, he's famous for. And so we'll let him speak for just a minute and then we'll come back. Perfect. Well, I visited the state institutions for the mentally retarded. And I think particularly at Willowbrook that we have a situation that's borders on uh, a snake pit that the children live in filth, uh, but uh, many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because lack of attention, lack of imagination, lack of uh, adequate manpower. Very little future for the children or for those who are in these institutions. Uh, Both need uh, a tremendous overhauling. So if you can maybe make out that audio a little bit. I did. It's kind of kind of hard to hear. Um, yeah. Robert F. Kennedy famously called Willowbrook a snake pit. Which, the snake pit. I love that. Yeah. So that term would be used to any mental health facility where the conditions had degraded to such an extent. And it's important for the visitors on the tour to know how we got there. So when a yeah. place like that was built, it was well-funded. There was support from the community, support from the government. But like anything else, long-term investment, buildings are falling down. More hospital beds are needed. More staff is needed. Staff need to get paid more. Everything goes up in terms of cost. And <laughs> this so, is making my head hurt just because nothing changes. That's the sad truth oh. that we get to at the end of the episode. So um, <laughs> it's a real upper, folks. Stay with us. So millions of dollars is I cut I miss from- death masks. 
<laughs> Shut up. <laughs> the tour goes on. Um, so in the beginning, the ratio of, of attending staff to patients was, um, was uh, three patients to one member of staff. When we got to this point in Willowbrook's history in the 60s and 70s, it was 30 to one. <sighs> so you have one human caring for more than 30 people. And that's at impossible. the it's impossible. And the 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 expose by Geraldo Rivera in 1972 was a watershed moment in this right. conversation. Geraldo is a little sensational. He's a little crazy. I mean, he's got his big mustache. What do you mean? <laughs> but he's actually quite an advocate and friend of the Willowbrook community. Um, you know, and he's really advocated for for their for their for their for their plight in the years to pe- in the years to come, um, there's an example of you know so so people were under medicated. There were some physicians who chose to withhold medication. There mm. were some experiments of regarding hepatitis infection. Oh no, that were done. Um, oh no, it's well documented. It's we're not talking like American horror story st- style evil, but okay. the evil comes from the lack of attention. So it's neglect. It's a lot it's of neglect. neglect, and it sounds like they're you know like we were trying to make the point before you're talking about a wide variety of people with a wide variety of issues. So some of these people literally need one-on-one care. Exactly. So you have problems of toileting, you know, the smell, the smell smell of Willowbrook was something that people still still remember. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the under specialization. You were hitting on this before Katie, the idea that people were either mentally unwell, disabled, Unfortunate words like slow and other words would be right. used. We and heard him that, say mentally retarded before. We did. He's probably referring to Down syndrome and other intellectual disabilities. Correct. Correct. Um, and so one example from Willowbrook is the story of Bernard Carabello. Um, Bernard Carabello is a cerebral palsy patient and he's still with us. And Bernard was misdiagnosed as develop- developmentally disabled and was improperly housed at Willowbrook for oh, decades. Oh, God. For decades. Oh. And in the expose, Geraldo meets up with him and he says, can you describe what's going on here? And he says, it's a disgrace. Bernard says, it's a disgrace. So oh, Bernard, Bernard. When, when Bernard turns 21... Doctors facilitate his self-emancipation. When you turn 21, you could you could withdraw. You oh, could check God. out. So as long as the person was able to, you know, have the faculties to sort of declare they wanted to leave and all of that. And so mm-hmm. um, and so he did. And Bernard went on to have a successful life um, and is an advocate for the Willowbrook community to this day. Um, that's just one example, folks, oh, of putting a human face for him. to this story. <laughs> he is an inspiring character, and we all can open our eyes more to the spectrum of yeah. mental wellness and developmental disabilities. And yeah. that's also a part of this is the urban legends are so appealing in, in this story because if it's an escape mental patient or if right. it's someone from these facilities, it kind of adds that level of um, illicitness to yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, on a personal note, um, I myself have um, bipolar disorder. I have bipolar two, and my child has mild cerebral palsy. So, I mean, in an older version of society, I don't know what our lives would be like, and especially as women. My God, I can't even fathom it. So, I mean, I have a, it's very, very painful when I hear about stories like that of someone just trapped in a place where they have no business being with little to no care. It's, it's deeply disturbing. 
it's it's a tragedy and um you know there are many comparisons to concentration camp like conditions just with the nature of this and we know the concentration camps in the holocaust era also targeted yeah. disabled people um so our attitudes on mental health begin to shift um the 1980s following the Geraldo Rivera exclusive it takes a long time yeah willowbrook does not close officially until 1987 when governor uh mario cuomo famously shut shut it down permanently so what yes. had happened was as these places closed, the idea was we're deinstitutionalizing America and we're sending these people into community centers, integrating them into the community. Now, that's a great idea, but <laughs> we know that the community centers did not fill the void left by the hospital sites. No. And the homelessness, the unhoused in America today, directly correlated to the closing of these facilities in the 70s through the 90s. Um, it's a completely sort of modern phenomenon. It's terrible. It is terrible. Just and a total lack of a forethought and um, infrastructure. Just so dumb. Yeah. A good thing to close it, right? But like you got to yes. have a better plan. And you create a vacuum when you close the place and don't touch it. So yeah. there's stories of patients returning to the facility. Maybe they live a couple of bus stops away and they just get the gravitational pull pulls them back. It's their Ugh. home, for lack of a better word. It's 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 That's all they remember. devastating. People would visit these sites and vandalize and explore as they get more forlorn, sure. as the sort of nature begins to reclaim them. Well, then Think it's scary kids. too, right? Keg parties, you can scare yeah. yourself, all of that. And so the unspeakable memories live on and they're they're twisted into new stories and urban legends in the same landscape. So the mm. Cropsey legend is terrible. What's horrible is that something like the Cropsey legend actually happened and also Willowbrook happened. Like there's, a, there's yeah. just so much bad juju in the environment in this Ooh. situation so in the course of 20 years in the course of 20 years these three sites all shut down creating this and they're all literally adjacent to each other katie they touch so you go you can walk through seaview through the farm colony do to do into willowbrook there it's this massive i feel like also it's got to be on top of like some Indigenous Some kind of Stephen King burial ground. <laughs> it's just bad things on top of bad things on top of bad things. You, you know, I haven't encountered that, but I'm not going to shut that down. You, you know, you um, know that it's probably true. And Staten Island itself has kind of a, 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 a connotation, reputation with being oh, kind yeah. of like a, cur a cursed, forsaken island in a sense. Um, apparently, the native people called it Aquahonga Manaknon, which means place of bad woods, which, according <laughs> according to what I've read, could mean either the forest is not nav is not good or there's a bad spirit there. <laughs> A.K.A. this place sucks. <laughs> Yes. Don't you want to so go? I'm so sorry, Staten Island. We're being massive haters right now, but come on. <laughs> so so we're trying to go through time. So these places all shut down and the Cropsey legend grows and grows and grows. And it's sometimes in Staten Island, it's related to a, a mental patient or someone in the facility. Um, in 1981, I have to share this, this Cropsey film, The Burning, gets made, the horror film. It's a slasher film. You are not going to believe this. Miramax produced this film, the early days of Miramax. So Bob and Harvey Weinstein produced and wrote oh, this movie. No. 
it gets worse. And no, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, so uh, Harvey Weinstein apparently pitched the idea based on the Cropsey stories he heard in upstate New York camps growing up. Oh, man. Right. Insane. I have a quote. Ugh. It remained so vivid in my mind all these years. I knew a film had to be made from it. Just speaking the power of the legend. So yeah. the film is great. Check it out. It's on Tubi. It features Jason Alexander. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. That's George Costanza. <laughs> With his full head of hair. He's so cute. He's so <gasps> cute. Baby. I mean, he was a song and dance man back then. Yeah, this is like the McDLT commercial. With the hot. Stays hot. Yeah. And the cool. <laughs> Sorry, that'll also be in the in the uh, annotated bibliography. Also, <laughs> Fisher Stevens. Fisher Stevens gets killed. Love Fisher Stevens. No. And uh, yeah. Spoiler on, alert: man. Fisher Stevens doesn't make it. Um, there's a kill every ten minutes. You're not. You're, the odds aren't good. Odds and Holly Hunter. Uh, Holly oh, Hunter is also in it. Academy Award winner Holly Hunter. Yeah, and Brad oh, yeah. Gray was one of the producers as well. Um, How have I not seen this? It's it's a terrible movie. I mean, it's a B movie slasher. <laughs> it was it cost uh, it cost one and a half million to make, and it made seven hundred fifty k in the box office. You know, it's a, it's a tank, but it's among the top the top fifty or top twelve, depending on the list of slasher films of all time. So check it out, The Burning, uh, the film featuring the Cropsey Maniac. I'm Highly there. recommend. Oh my god, we so, are having a movie night. Yes, we are. So this story is like really high and low. Like we're we're laughing about the movie, but there's some really dark stuff going on as well in terms it's of disgusting. the crazy landscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disgusting, like massive crimes, like dehumanizing crimes um, mm -hmm. in terms of the care of people and shoving them into these institutions. Um, so now we go through the looking glass, ladies and gentlemen, when the legend becomes real. Okay, because so this is what I've been sitting here thinking is like, make these things come together for me because I don't understand where this camp story, anything to do with a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, well, you're probably going to wish you could just pause right now and stop. So oh, no. in the 1970s and 80s, there were a string of missing children cases in Staten Island. Mm. In 1972, five-year-old Alice Pereira goes missing. She is seen. Um, her mother leaves her behind at their apartment building complex parking lot for a moment, comes back. She's gone. Never seen again. Fucking nightmare. It's a fucking in, Ju in July of 1981, seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes goes missing. In August of 1983, Thais Jackson is reported missing. 1984, Hank Gaforio, who is by far the oldest. He's about 22 years old, but he has the uh, intellectual quotient of about a 15-year-old. He's <gasps> missing. Oh, my God. And in 1987, Jennifer Schweiger, a 12-year-old girl, goes missing. Now, what I'm withholding from this is all of these individuals have some kind of neurodiversity, some kind of developmental disability, some kind of challenge. Um, Jennifer Schweiger was a 12-year-old girl with Down syndrome. Um, so all of these kids have this, this life fact in common to some extent. Is and she the so, one, uh, Luke, is she the one whose picture I've seen a lot in like all of the Cropsey documentary stuff? It likely is. Yeah. yeah. So when Jennifer goes missing, it's That's 1987. It's been, so now we're talking a 15-year span, 72 to 87. So mm. the Cropsey story and the legend is used by families during this time. Like, you know, 
kids go missing, you know, there's, and there's stranger danger in this society as well. But also kids were very trusting in the 70s and 80s, I think more so than maybe we were in the late 80s and 90s. Um, Definitely. So it's an interesting sort of dynamic. Um, so Staten Island is gripped by these disappearances. Now, you and I both, we both followed the Atlanta monster story. That community does not recover from that overnight, no. n- nigh in decades. It's it's something that is deeply felt and something that is deeply personal and, and, and is seen as evil. Evil. Yeah. Like, you know, completely evil. And I think also with a place like Staten Island, you know, a lot of people, they think of New York City as a place that you move to, but out in the boroughs, like the real boroughs, like the middle of Staten Island, the middle of where I'm from in Brooklyn, like generally you're born there, you live there, you stay there, you know? So like there's a real community. And so that false sense of safety, I think can easily exist um, in the way that it would in any kind of suburb environment. You know what I mean? You're right. You're right. And in Staten Island, you're in the city and the country. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're kind of in a liminal space where you're in part suburb, but you're part of the five boroughs. And very um, so- uh, certain areas of Staten Island are a little secluded, so easy to and do any kind of horrible abduction kind of crime, I think. And yeah, ugh, I can't even to say nothing of the history of organized crime and mafia oh, sure. related hits and killings and burials and all of that. So it's yeah. all same story. Yep. Um, so all of these people I've mentioned, these missing children, only one is found. What? Jennifer Schweiger is discovered a month after her disappearance. Alive, please? No. Damn it. Her body is found at the Willowbrook State School, then known as the Staten Island Development Center. So it's months before Willowbrook physically closes in September of 87. In August, Jennifer's body is found in a shallow grave behind Building 27. Oh, my God. So there were weeks of searches that led us to this point. You meet one of the searchers, Donna Catunio, in the in the documentary. Please learn about her. She's an incredible mm-hmm. person. Um, and so in the years leading up to the discovery of Jennifer, the problem is there's no body, no crime, right? No evidence. Of course, Nothing yeah. to pin to someone, right? So now we get into the fun sort of criminal justice side of this. So. For years, it was believed that Andre Rand, born Frank Ruchan in 1944, was had something to do with this. Andre Rand worked at Willowbrook in the 1960s as a custodian. I've seen pictures of him, and he looks kind of like a scary dude. He is a scary dude. He was he was most likely um, someone who was part of this community itself maybe mm. in a very remote way. Um, so he briefly serves as a custodian Willowbrook in the 1970s and 80s. He's something of a vagrant or a drifter living mm. in campsites around Willowbrook. And again, like I mentioned, he may not have been the only one. There may have been sure. others as well. You know, he was the one. He was reportedly seen holding hands with Holly Ann Hughes and Jennifer Schweiger in the in the time after their disappearance by various eyewitnesses, which... Doesn't mean, I mean much. Yeah. Doesn't mean much. Um, what it's worth. And he had prior convictions of attempted kidnapping. I mean. Hello. So, that you know. doesn't work in his favor. In the court of public opinion, this guy didn't stand a chance. And the documentary really explores this complexity in okay. a really interesting way. And what I like about the documentary is you can watch the documentary once or twice and like capturing the Freedmen's or some of these other great classics. You kind of walk away thinking, well, there was that other thing. Like the thing with Andre Rand is that there's no physical evidence connecting him to the crime. 
like zilch. Mm -hmm. It's all like circumstantial and hearsay. And just the fact that he was a pariah, he's a pariah in the, in the community. And they're saying, you're the pariah who has taken our children away. Let's get rid of this evil character and move on. Um, Right. And who cares about you anyway? What do you mean to anybody? You are nobody's loss, right? right? That's the idea. And what's amazing is that that same lens that was turned on the community of those with disabilities in the 30s, 40s, 50s is turned on to someone else in this similar capacity. Someone who could use some services, could use some support in some way who has been led to this point. So in 1988, Rand is charged with kidnapping and murder of Jennifer Schweiger. He is found guilty of only first degree kidnapping and is sentenced. Yeah, He was was convicted, but you said there was no... Physical evidence, everything was circumstantial. They were able to convict him with no. They still charge. They still charged him. They still charged him with murder. So they could only nail him for kidnapping. So he was guilty of kidnapping in the first degree. Okay. Which carries a lot of the same sentencing power as murder in the state of New York. So he sentenced 20, 25 years to life. The Kidnapping Chronicles. Oh my God. Um, well, no, I just, I've been reading a book or, you know, I may finish it. Yes, like that it. book. I know that book you're talking about. The yes. Kidnap Years where, um, yeah. Oh, we, I could do, I could do a fun episode on that. I won't, I won't say too much more on that. But yes, it, there was a time when kidnapping was not considered a federal crime and it mattered very little if you took them out of state. Now it's obviously a much bigger deal. And once upon a time, actually, it was punishable by death. Right. Yes. No, it was it was the most egregious thing. It was, you know, it was um, all because of the Lindbergh. The Lindbergh absolutely, baby. it really Lindbergh changed things hysteria. dramatically. Yup. So um, anyway, irrelevant. Continue. <laughs> no, it's all good. So he's in jail for twenty five plus years. Then in two thousand four, Rand is charged with kidnapping Holly Ann Hughes, and he is sentenced to another twenty five years for first degree kidnapping. What evidence came to light? That he oh was. Oh my God. The documentary goes in. It's unbelievable that this stuck. They find some girl who's like 25 and she's like got her long nails and she's got <gasps> this like hair. And she's like, Yeah, I remember her. I remember Taisha. She gets all the names of the kids wrong. Oh she's like, Yeah, God. I remember he took her. He took her. He took her. And it's like, Fuck you. Like you are. You are taking advantage of these people's tragedy, these families who continually come out to these hearings, trying to find closure, trying to raise awareness. And you're just you're just hopping on this ride for a moment of a moment of glory. Like, Ew. you know, you're you're a disgusting person. That's um, very apologies gross. to this person. Um, so, yeah. And, when, and they follow the trial in the documentary. And you're like, this is crazy. And it, it, it happens again. And wow. Rand is like Rand is like walking to the corrections bus. And he goes, you're perpetrating a fraud. That's like the only thing you hear him say, like in the whole documentary. Uh, um, it's I fascinating. That the oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so and so you're and on Rand, his team, and, Luke. No, I'm not. I'm okay. not. I'm not. I'm not on his team. I without, without suspicion. I do not think, think he's without suspicion. And okay. um, what's really interesting is that they catch up with one of his buddies, a guy named Reverend Musket. <laughs> Sorry. What colonial play was he written into? (laughs) Your sweet Reverend Musket, who is the the who is the a a pastor of a local church on Staten Island. And basically, basically the police coerced Musket to house Rand in one of his like little community shelters so the cops could keep an eye on him. (gasps) And Musket was was then made was cast out because people thought he was a friend of Rand, but he couldn't say anything because it was related to an ongoing investigation would have blown up the whole thing. So he moves out of Staten Island, chase him out. Poor Reverend (gasps) Musket. 
Colonel they chased Musket. <laughs> and he is so cute with his like no teeth in 2005. I mean, um, Colonel Mustard. That's why I said Colonel Mustard. I blame the brain fog. It's um, so Colonel, much the COVID. <laughs> Colonel Rifle. Um, no. So, <laughs> Colonel Mustard with a yes. rifle in the insane asylum. And so they finally, they finally get to Musket and you, you think they're never going to get the interview, right? Cause they, they knock on so many doors of people who are like, no, fuck you. He doesn't live anymore. He's dead. And so they finally get to Musket and he goes, do you think that Andre Rand kidnapped Holly Ann Hughes or Jennifer Schweiger? And he goes, Oh, he told me, he told me. <gasps> and Musket. yeah. And he's like, basically he thought Musket. <laughs> with the, with the no teeth in the church. Um, so he says that according to what he remembers from what Rand said, he thought he was doing the family a service <gasps> in taking the burden of raising that child oh, away from them. Oh, oh my God. Mm -hmm. Which is what people at Willowbrook thought they were doing. They, they were thought doing. they were helping, we're helping the, the families. families. Right. So how twisted is that? And he was part of that. And the, the, the detectives who interviewed Rand played the Geraldo tape for him, which he had never seen when he was arrested. And apparently when he saw it, he went into a catatonic state, <gasps> started drooling what? and said, we were victims too. So, I'm Describe not saying, my face right now. <laughs> I mean, it's, I've destroyed the entire documentary for you listeners, but I promise you there is something to see. It's got twists and turns and it's so complex. It's so complex because was there secondhand trauma, trauma afflicted upon people who worked there? I would imagine so. Does that justify what they did? No. I but, mean, listen, even if they weren't directly doing anything, the things that they that Witnessed. people who worked there saw. Correct. My Correct. God. And had and to shut up about. Right. The right. They had to keep. Bearing right? witness. Like we talk about that, Oof. you know, bearing witness to the tragedy. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a right, you know, it's something that, that one but again, must do. This is us sort of giving the benefit of the doubt that this guy isn't like a, a rapist, murderer, kidnapper guy. Right. 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 Hoping for the best. Hoping, hoping for the best. Yeah. Um, so the documentary goes into all these wonderful areas. Um, the documentary explores the concept that Rand was part of a satanic cult. Always. This whole Always. fucking time period. Satanic panic. Satanic panic. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, that's what I meant you, to say. By the way, slight, slightly off topic, but also very on topic. Not off topic. Uh, have you been watching this season of Stranger Things? Anyone? Everyone? Because yeah. between... The Kate Bush song that everyone's into all of a sudden, even though it's, <laughs> it's super old, it's, it's, it's younger than I am, but still pretty old. Um, and the fact that it's so much about satanic panic, uh, it's just been making me think of our podcast nonstop and, and how much we can talk about that. And lo and behold, here we are. Here we are. Fucking talking about it because here we are. it was such a, such a stupid part of those years. And it and, still uh, continues on to some extent. And Zeman, the director of this movie, also directed Sons of Sam, <laughs> the documentary about Berkowitz. So Which, mm, I have mm, I have I have feelings about that documentary. But anyway, yeah, I think I think Zeman's a great filmmaker. I think he paints with a heavy brush sometimes. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> me being delicate, come to our show. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, so it's believed that he was part of the satanic cult there was the church of the process which was Ugh. founded by a staten islander there is an absolutely bone chilling segment of the film where a new york detective 
just is interviewed about the sacrifices that may have been done. And he like does not answer the questions in a way that reassures your, your soul. Like they're like, they're like, um, they're like, uh, and to people use kids for these, for these rituals. He goes, I'm not going to answer that. But like also that he was very creepy. This guy, Frank says, I don't know if you're out there. Don't kill me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, so, so there's a letter that police receive a month after Jennifer is found. And the letter is addressed from an uncle Rick. And it says, Andre Rand did not kill Jennifer. All he did was bring her to the coven. <gasps> so it is alleged that Rand had connections to this church of the process. And the documentary says that he roomed with Berkowitz in jail, which I don't believe. Um, <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, but also it's only a couple of years after signing the son of Sam. This is all sure. happening in the same time period. So this is the, the cultural milieu. You know, was Rand the killer? Was, he, was in, he the was he the perfect suspect? Was you know? were he and and uh, Sam Berkowitz at Rikers? That's it's like it's thrown away in the movie, and I couldn't find anything to substantiate it. Um, right. So I don't know. Like I think it's like they may have been in the same facility for like a minute. Right. But I've, you know, I have right. no idea. Uh, you, he is in Rikers in the movie. Okay, that was my question. He yeah, that's what Rikers I was wondering. Yeah, so in the movie, they go to Rikers to try to visit him. Okay. And he, like, catfishes them. Like, I don't want to talk to you. Um, so very dramatic. Um, <laughs> and another aspect of this, the last one I'll sort of share in this, is that in the movie, they uncover that Andre Rand's mother had emotional disturbances and psychological problems. Of and, course. And was treated at Pilgrim State on Long Island, which was a sister of the Willowbrook State School. It's all coming together. It's all coming together. So these places, Pilgrim State was one of the largest in the country. Where was like, Pilgrim State on Long it, Island? I have driven through it once. Um, I cannot exactly remember where. I think it's near Farmingdale. Okay, so like Suffolk-y. Brentwood, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no. I mean, you're not you're not far off. Yeah. So and a lot of those buildings are still there. And the way these hospitals were built, they were all built the same, like a building in the middle. And then all of these other spokes going out to these other buildings, beautiful campuses. And so Rand likely visited his mother at Pilgrim State, affected by that. Did that lead him to work in a similar site? Was he sort of reliving his own life and trauma? Um, sure. It's unbelievable. But these places between them, you know, they each had about 10 to 15,000 residents at their at their height. So they were massive sites. And again, think about the modern homes and care centers that are around. We're not talking about that, that scale. We're not no. talking nearly about that scale. Um, so you have a comment? No, no. I would, I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe of the many, the connective tissues going on here. It's um, insane. So that leads us to the sort of the final thought about Cropsey. Mm. And that is what I would call Cropsey Land, which <laughs> is the facilities today. So the Seaview Hospital. I just closed. have to say real Go quickly. Ahead. Yeah. yeah Every good. time you say Cropsey Land, I hear Timbaland in my head. <laughs> so I've been singing it, but to Cropsey Land. <laughs> Cropsey Landia. I think of Portland. Portlandia. Portlandia. Um, Cropslandia. Yes. So Cropsey Land. I what? refer to Cropsey Land as the urbex capital of New York City. So I bet. It is. So the Seaview Hospital is shut down in the 90s. They opened up parts of it again. So there are some buildings that are used there as the Seaview Hospital Rehabilitation Center and home. Um, the farm colony is still completely shuttered. 
It is mm. completely overgrown and it is a beguiling, haunting, incredible experience. Again, folks, it is not legal to go on those grounds. You have to be very careful if you're photographing from behind a chain link fence, wink, wink, or if you <laughs> permeate the, um, the if you permeate the perimeter. Um, parts of the farm colony were turned into baseball fields in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> oh, how quaint! I know, like that ball. The ball went over the fence. Don't go over the fence, Jimmy. Do not also, go, go, over, go over the fucking fence, Jimmy. Do not turn. Um, you're more likely to get a contact high from kids smoking pot in Cropsy land today um, mm. than anything really nefarious happening to you. Um, so the farm colony, again, these beautiful hulks of structures that are about a hundred years old, 105, 110 years old. Um, they're really haunting. They're beautiful. And every season they look different. Uh, when I drive to work, I oh. go, I go down Brielle Avenue and in the winter, you know, you've got this like snowy white situation. All the trees are clear. You can see the buildings really well in the summer. It's a jungle. And they're just almost, right. they're almost obscured from view. I bet um, the winter landscape is the scarier of all the landscapes. I may, have, kind of I, may have, I may have gone there in January and it was very, what? it was very foggy and uh, it was spooky as hell. I got do you scared. have any pictures to maybe share? Oh, I do. Yay! I do. Yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of pictures. So these sites are incredibly photogenic. They're so beautiful and without context of knowing what they are, we can get very romantic ideas about them. Sure. But you're, you're very likely to find infrastructure at these places, trays, beds, things of that nature. Um, and so I, of course, would ca would advise caution to anyone who's thinking about going to these places. Sure. Um, and we'll talk in a second about, you know, where you can explore safely. Um, in the in the uh, in a, a final note on this, the Willowbrook State School, arguably the site with the most trauma attached to it, um, is now the College of Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> Which also has a lot of trauma attached to it. <laughs> yes. So the College of Staten Island has a very challenging task ahead of it in terms of accommodating this legacy into their campus. The college is incredible in terms of the site. I will say I've been a couple times. A good friend of mine teaches there. And I think I've, I actually have known a few people who have gone through I've known as well. a fair amount of CSI alum. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's amazing is that the campus is like part rehabilitated campus but there are still buildings on the campus that are completely cordoned off and gated off Ooh. that haven't been touched so you've got like some snow globe urbex porn in the corner and then you've got like <laughs> and then you've got like the student center and gift shop and bookstore over on the other side and and remind me because it's been a minute college sure. Sta college of staten island also there's there's no dormitories that's that's a commuter college right I th I believe it is mostly commuter because I don't want to live on that situation. <laughs> yeah, residential life in Cropsey Land. No thanks. Um, yeah, it's it's spooky. It's spooky. And so the the College of Staten Island founded something called the Willowbrook Mile, which is a commemorative mm. trail that 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 touches on different buildings and their legacies and their stories. Um, but before I get to that, there's one other area where Cropsey appears, and you're going to oh, love this. Yes, please. Um, there is a band called Cropsey. <laughs> of course. And <laughs> I'm like, I bet you this is like evil death metal. And yeah, it's very heavy metal, scary. Like, oh my God, are you going to make us listen to it? I was not going to, but maybe we can put that in. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to. No, it's not enjoyable. No, thank you. But they use they use images they use urban exploration images in the 
cover art. So all of this as to recap folks for urban explorers, a place like this that's been abandoned, that's not policed, that's very easy to get into, that's very illicit, that's scary, that's big, is a huge draw. And people want to go, they want to fill in the blank, they want to be yeah. scared, they want to experience something new. The idea of exploring a new landscape, whether it's a new farmland or an old hospital, is something that is so appealing to people in general. Um, and the urban explorers kind of hobby kind of goes in on that in terms of understanding a place's history and kind of searching for answers or a taste of that history personally up close. Um, yeah. That's, that's really the appeal. Yeah. So when you first, how, how did you first encounter this? I mean, the movie synced me up. Okay. Do- 2009, the documentary comes out and I was like, what in the world? And I've yeah. been essentially researching this for the last 10 years off and on, you know, yeah. as you do. Oh, oh no, I know. Because <laughs> you talk about it all the time. <laughs> I'm obsessed. I'm deeply obsessed. And I also, you know, I think the story of the College of Staten Island is a good one. Like, I think these mm-hmm. sites should be rehabilitated. You know, Jane Jacobs said, we don't need new buildings. We can use old buildings. Um, there's something to be said about sure. taking a site like that and turning it into something new while also paying tribute to what happened before. That's well, the important I, thing to that me. That was going to be the next thing that I, that I was wondering about. You know, part of what we talk about on this podcast is like, you know, where you can go to see, you know, an artifact, whatever. Um, and in this case, this this is an episode that's obviously been more about, you know, a, a story and within a space, right? Yes. So, but I do think because there's so much tragedy of, uh, involved in this, I mean, multiple events, yes. uh, I'm curious about what, memorials there are in place what recognition of what has happened is in place it sounds like yeah. at least college of staten island recognizes it to some extent i am i am humbled by what i have learned in terms of the memory making of willowbrook because wow. i've looked i've looked at a lot of hospital sites <laughs> again mother is so proud and <laughs> um say oh and how nice and, and i can tell you that there's a lot of un- there's a lot of forgetting. There's a lot of unremembering, yeah. a lot of hush hush, a lot of demolition, and something is left for 80 years after, and it finally they just they just pull it. Um, but this is such a watershed moment. So there's a huge lawsuit filed by parents of Willowbrook residents <gasps> and patients after really? this. It's a landmark case. And the Willowbrook consent decree was a massive result of this lawsuit. Um that you know provides for greater levels of informed consent when it comes to surrendering a loved one to a place like this. Yes. Um, And so the American Disabilities Act of 1990 follows. And many scholars have said that you can argue that this watershed case, the closing of the snake pit that RFK saw was a part of that, Um, which all sounds, which all sounds very good. Right. Um, Uh, Yeah. The New York Times, the New York Times did an article um, on the survivors of Willowbrook a few years ago. Actually, it was a few months ago, I believe. And it denotes more than 2,000 alumni or survivors of Willowbrook remain in the New York City area. And the New York Times exposed the fact that many have had to file complaints about mistreatment and have been subjected to violence and cruelty at group homes in New York City. Currently. Currently. They're currently experiencing the same kind of shit they had to endure. Right. Because these facilities the are, 
these facilities are just micro underfunded versions of their former hospital. And in fact, one of the people in the story who's interviewed refers to this as we created a bunch of little Willowbrooks. Oh, God. So on the one hand, we have more awareness. We have more of a societal appreciation, understanding, and our attitudes of mental health have shifted, which I think the landscape of Cropsey land tells us and should be told and should be remembered yeah. because it would help us from falling on our face every 20 years when budgets tighten and contract. Um, so there's a couple other sort of points of legacy. There's a wonderful nonprofit on Staten Island called A Very Special Place that was founded by caregivers from Willowbrook who left and created a refuge for those who were leaving Willowbrook. And they've been providing services and programs for ex-Willowbrook patients since the 1980s. Oh, and, that's beautiful. That's and they're so social, nice. They're social justice advocates, and they are all for humanizing care environments and delivery systems for those with mental challenges. Um you know, these sensational murders obscure the the avoidable suffering and the deaths of the untold masses at these sites. It um, does. There is a Willowbrook Memorial Lecture that is held every year at the College of Staten Island. And I happened to watch one of the live streams that was reposted on the YouTube page. The Willowbrook YouTube page is actually incredible. It's like a big social uh, it's a big oral history archive, essentially, oh. of people talking about their loved ones, about working there, things like that. And Dr. William Bronston, who was the Willowbrook director, is still alive. And in 2021, in the, in the lecture, he said, Willowbrook was a primitive cancer and it was cut out, but the disease still exists and it is widespread throughout <sighs> the nation. So the what's incredible is to think about Dr. Bronston, these guys in their 60s, 70s, and 80s still rattling the spear and yeah. still raising the alarm. You know, you can't get to that same level of, oh my God, like in Geraldo in 1972, everything is so dispersed. It's yeah, abstract. Sure. It's different. Um, but but it's, it, I mean, it's, it's so, it's, this is so relevant because mm -hmm. there's, I mean, you know, right now amidst the ever ongoing horror show that is gun violence in this country everybody immediately jumps up to you know what about mental health care what about mental health care and it's like yeah well what about fucking mental health care mm -hmm. you know we we come a long way in some ways and yet we're still so primitive in other ways and particularly how we view people who require these services right and gun control and mental health are such different ideas, and you can control guns in a very specific way, but how in the world are you supposed to fix mental health to, to the point where the gun situation goes away? Like, that's a much right. more complicated solution. It's a cop-out, you know, but it's it's not a one-in-one, -one, you know, as I understand it at all, at all. No, no, I think, I think they're two issues that need help. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think one might very well help the other, but I don't think that, you know, <laughs> they're, yeah. anyway. Going and on so, a tangent here. No, and so, you know, the final thought on this to kind of try to wrap it up in a bow is the incredible origin of the Cropsey legend, the incredible building of these sites on Staten Island, their closure, their illicit transformation, the terrible stain of real true crime that happens within the envelope of these sites, the unresolved nature of the culprit, who did it, who is Cropsey, mm -hmm. we don't really right. know, right? Um, and it takes time for us as a society to come to grips with this painful history. It takes time. We know that. Yeah. Um, how will we remember the real history of this 
cropsy landscape. What will that look like? I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think there's a lot of potential for these sites. Every couple of years, they think about redeveloping them and changing them yeah. and transforming them. But in the meantime, the legends and lore um, are maybe a way of obscuring the real suffering and tragedies that happened in these places um, yeah. while also keeping kids sort of off the streets at night. Ooh, that's <laughs> a lot to unpack, my friend. <laughs> it's not a light topic. And let me just say... If you want to learn more about this, folks, this is what we're supposed to talk about in this podcast. Yeah. There are so many things you can do. You can watch and read. Um, the Burning is available for free on Tubi. Um, there's a great article in the pre-production that I found from the United Kingdom called Hysteria Lives. Um, the Cropsy Maniac um, article in New York Folklore by Lee Herring and Mark Breslerman features those interviews with campers who are grown up and remembering what they did. Um Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace, is the Geraldo Rivera 1972 expose on WABC, ABC7 New York. It's available on YouTube. Oh, good. That was going to be my biggest question was where can I watch that? Because that I, I definitely want to check you're out. you're going to get to meet Bernard then, and you also get to meet him in a follow-up documentary called Unforgotten, 25 Years After Willowbrook, narrated mm. by the amazing Italian Danny Aiello. Oh, um, Danny. I love he's him. He's so sweet. Yeah, he's so good. Um, yeah. And um, the Willowbrook Memorial Lectures are all available online via YouTube. The Willowbrook Mile Project, you can read more about that at the College of Staten Island website. And they also have a Willowbrook State School Documentation Project, a research mm -hmm. archive. Um, you can visit the Cropsey Home, Jasper <laughs> Cropsey, that is, in Ever. Uh, the home is called Ever Rest, and it's in Hastings on Hudson. It's a beautiful Gothic, Carpenter Gothic home where the real Cropsey painter lived. Um, and beyond that, I uh, have some, oh, there's a wonderful Urbex photographer that I want to really shout out. The name of this website is Opacity. And uh, Opacity is an incredible website where you can safely explore a campus <laughs> like this from your armchair. Um, incredible high-resolution photographs, really beautiful photography. Again, the beauty of the, of the photography belies what happened there. To me, that is endlessly fascinating and something worth exploring. Um, yes, I. Uh, you sent me the link to that yeah. earlier, and I did take a look at it. And as someone who's not necessarily um, urbexy, <laughs> <laughs> I found it very accessible and very interesting. It's so. really great. Um, yeah. And then our buddy, Kevin Walsh, uh, wrote an article on the hospital called Hospital of the Damned. So Forgotten New York, great uh, urban explorer. Kevin Walsh wrote a book on yes. it and also wrote this article on his website. Um and uh, another article is The History of Willowbrook and the Terrifying Legend of Cropsey in ClassicNewYorkHistory.com. But I will share all of these articles and many, 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 many more uh, with the audience via our website and channels. Um, but I want to say thank you for listening. Katie, do you have any final reflections based on what I just dumped on you? I feel like my brain is going to explode from the terror and the sorrow. I have so many feelings I'm feeling. I'm sure I'm not the only one. I just, I have to say for me, I'm, I really wanted to come into this knowing next to nothing. Right. And so what I thought it was going to be and what I was going to learn was so different. Um, <laughs> I thought it was going to be so much more about the legend side of things right. rather than the core of this story is just how we have continuously failed yes. people with mental illness in this country. It's and true. how devastating it is. And not just people with mental illness, people with disabilities, people with, um, you know, 
who are differently advantaged yeah. going looking at like right. you know people who are poor people who know? are poor like i mean it's really it's it's deeply deeply depressing i don't, I don't think i was prepared for how i i don't i i know i'm sorry i'm sorry we should have a cocktail have um, Come we, on. <laughs> it's time for a morbid manhattan um <laughs> well yeah so that's that's my whole perspective before we sign off i do want to take a quick moment to once again thank all of our listeners you guys are awesome we're so excited to be doing this and i really want to give a huge shout out to uh Brittany shawl yes. who is the artist who created our gorgeous gorgeous cover art uh you should absolutely check her out on instagram i believe she's at Brittany shawl and she also has her own website she is amazing and worth every penny if you ever want to <laughs> uh, get some artwork from her. Um, Thank you so much, Brittany. We love our morbid art. Thank oh my you God, so much. We love you. Uh, but I think that's it, Luke. You want to wrap us up here? Sure. Well, folks, thanks for joining us for the Morbid Museum podcast. Join us next time as our tour continues. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.